This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Larry Ward. Larry is both a Baptist minister and a Dharma teacher, ordained by Thich Nhat Hanh. He's also a director of the Lotus Institute. Deeply inspired by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Larry Ward has spent his life committed to nonviolent social change, healing, and transformation on a global level. Which sounds true, Larry will be a featured presenter in our Year of Mindfulness program. A Year of Mindfulness is a program that brings participants together online from all over the world to receive guidance from a diverse group of leading teachers, including John Kabat-Zinn, Jack Kornfield, Tara Brock, Sharon Salzberg, and Larry Ward. Each month, participants will be introduced to a new technique and approach that helps them bring mindfulness into each and every area of their life. A Year of Mindfulness begins on February 13th, 2017. For more information, you can visit SoundsTrue.com. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Larry and I spoke about strategies to develop a deep reservoir of resilience while at work. We also talked about the five energy leaks that inhibit optimal performance at work, what Larry calls the secrets of energy management. We also explored how it's more important to demonstrate mindfulness than to talk about it. Questions of race, self-esteem, and ancestral healing. And finally, what Larry means by developing fierce equanimity. Here's my conversation with Larry Ward. Larry, to begin, I would love it if you would share with our listeners a bit about how you came in your personal biographical journey to this nexus point of meditation and teaching meditation and working in corporations and bringing mindfulness and work together. Okay, I'm pleased to have such a question. I uh, began to... I've always kind of been a student. So I studied mindfulness and world religions back in the 60s when I was associated with uh, on the staff of the Ecumenical Institute in Chicago. And uh, subsequently, during my time, I ended up serving in India, uh, where I met um, a monk who really helped me understand the practice of meditation and mindfulness beyond the theory that I was already getting acquainted with. So from then on, every place I got stationed or moved to in the world, I would find a place to practice in different traditions, um, be it uh, 
any contemplative tradition, Christian tradition, Buddhist tradition, Hindu tradition, in terms of the practice itself. So, but my focus has primarily been within, and my scholarship has been within the Buddhist tradition. It kind of led me over the years in getting connected with Thich Nhat Hanh about 25 years ago. Uh, really was my impetus, continues to be my impetus for both my scholarship and my practice and service. I think what has happened in the last maybe 15 years um, is our development of technology and tools in neuroscience has helped us understand that there's nothing spooky about mindfulness, that mindfulness actually is a description of a quality inherent in human beings, and it can be trained, it can be developed, it can be enhanced, and it can be optimized for good. And of course, because mindfulness in this sense is neutral, it can also be optimized for not good. Um, so my goal is to in, encourage the wise application of mindfulness. And by mindfulness here, I mean attention uh, to where we direct our energy and our life force, be that collective in a corporation or individual in, at work or at home. Now, Larry, yeah, it's interesting that you, first of all, just talk about mindfulness as having a kind of inherent neutrality, that this capacity to pay attention could be used for not good. Can you give me an example of that, what you mean by that? Yeah, what I mean, the, the first time this really occurred to me that was not theoretical was in watching the films about 9-11. And uh, what I saw in the, in, in the film, of uh, the airplane that didn't make it to D.C., mm-hmm. um, was that there were people praying on the plane And there were other people associated with the terrorists praying on the ground. And they were praying for different outcomes. They were directing their attention for different purposes. And that's what I mean by we can use our attention, you know, to be kind, or we can use our attention to be mean. I mean, that's just normal human, you know, kind of behavior stuff. So that's what I mean by that statement. Okay. And in... Bringing mindfulness into the workplace, I'd love to know a little bit more about how you see that. I mean, I know there are so many different trainers now who go into businesses and they will teach both executives and people at all levels of an organization beginning mindfulness practices, beginning practices of breathing and working with emotional reactivity Do you see mindfulness at work going further than that? And if so, how? How will it really transform the workplace? Well, my, let's see, how should I say? My approach, unless I'm invited in to a a business with the express purpose of me offering mindfulness practices, everything I do in terms of mindfulness in a corporation or in a business is stealth. Mm-hmm. So I I can go in either direction. I'm, I don't have a mindfulness agenda in that sense. And the reason I don't, again, is because I know it's a normal human quality. So 
uh, in this sense, this is more a secular interpretation of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. This is not a religious and necessarily spiritual interpretation of mindfulness. Um, that's something a little different. Um, so my concern with organizations is th- their cultural adaptability, how mindfulness, how the energy of attention can be applied skillfully on helping organizational cultures change, adapt, and grow. So that's one area of focus that I have. And I, I work with corporations in that way. And I can do that without ever, raise, ever, without ever using the language of mindfulness, if that's what I mean. The second area that I like to focus on that I see really requires is leadership um, as a whole person activity uh, rather than leadership as simply a cognitive activity or, in some cases, simply an emotional activity Um, so that the whole person gets developed and the whole person has access to all their skills, talents, and abilities um, to lead to lead successfully, which continuously requires to pay attention in new ways. And it's so easy to fall into habits. You chuckled when you said leading in an emotional way. Did you mean just like leading by, you know, screaming? By screaming or... at okay, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't realize that was a, an effective form of leadership. Maybe I should try that. Yeah, yeah I've experienced this. All I've seen this all over the world. Uh huh. Interesting. <laughs> it it's rarely successful. Though it might be invigorating at the moment, yeah, <laughs> it's not a long-term solution. Um, so, and this brings up one of my kind of operational points or principles is that organizations need to shift from being problem-driven to to vision-led. And people often say they're working on their vision, but if you actually look at what they give attention to, how they spend time as leaders. You know, whether they spend 20% of the time on actually what they think their priorities are. Some more, some less, but it's a really shocking way to evaluate one's attention as a leader in a corporation or organization. How am I actually spending my time? Yeah, uh, I think I understand what you mean by whole person leadership. It's a a complex thing to actually do, but I think I know what you're pointing to, I think, when you're talking about bringing in our, this is what I presume, our deep heart, our real vision, our deep... Our emotional intelligence. Yeah. You know, our intuition, our sensitivity. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we're... we're, The the third area that I'm really is connected to this is working with people on developing skills of resilience. Mm-hmm. So how, how do you, so that resilience is not just reactivity, but proactivity, learning to be resilient before you need to be resilient so that you actually build up a reservoir of resilience so that you can stay clear enough to make the decisions you need to make in a crisis. Well, let's talk about that, because I think that most people probably wish they had a greater reservoir of resilience. So how do you help people develop that? Well, I help people develop that by introducing them to 
mindfulness methodologies that help you first calm your body, which is a skill. And so as people learn how to calm their bodies, learn how to relax their bodies, that becomes the foundation for the emotional aspects of resilience, which have to do with learning how to calm your emotion. You know, the storm, the, the wind, the waves of upset, embarrassment, feelings of failure, or even feelings of success that sometimes disturb people. Uh, in some cases, even more. So learning how to live with your emotional life and with other people as you interact with other people in skillful ways. And this especially includes customers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't tell you how much I've seen, because I've also had the chance to interact with customers by the request of who I work with on uh, different contexts and different businesses. And, you know, people remember how they're treated emotionally. Mm-hmm. And they make decisions about that when they pull out their wallet the next time. So for me, this is all very practical and has concrete implications for the bottom line, if you want to use that language. I'm comfortable with that. I want to track back the, the very first way that you work with companies, you said, is that you help teams, you help people in a business learn to change, adapt, and grow. And I'd like to hear more about that specifically. I think that's also a challenge that most people in business are faced with in our changing Mm -hmm. landscape. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, years ago, I developed a method that I call uh, organizational anthropology. And what, what that means is to train ourselves to look at our organizations. You know, we already look at them financially. We look at them in terms of demographics. We look at them to our product lines. I mean, we have lots of different ways of looking, you know, at our portfolio, how we're doing in the stock market, if that's the case. But to learn how to look at an organization also as a tribe. When I see organizations attempting to change, they have difficulty seeing themselves well enough to know how to change. And uh, I've discovered if you begin to help people with methods and learn how to look at their organization as a tribal dynamic, they can really understand levels of resistance and levels of possibilities they hadn't discovered otherwise. And I have four different ways of working on that. Uh, the, the first one is to, to be mindful if you want to use that that language or pay attention to the organization's story both this conscious story i don't mean just the story that goes out in you know the annual report or to the press or what have you i I mean it's it's living story inside of people that is often unconscious that motivates behaviors these are the stories people tell in the parking lot in the cafeteria while they're on trips on the airplane or what have you about who used to who used to work there, how they behaved, I mean, all these kinds of things. Second area is to understand the paradigm that the culture is in. What, you know, is it operating still as if it was 50 years ago? I mean, there's plenty of examples of businesses that aren't doing well now that could have been doing well now if they'd have got the paradigm shift in their industry if they were paying attention to the larger story beyond their own tribe. And so for me, that has to do with the paradigm, the business, staying in touch with their industry, looking ahead 
anticipating helping people learn how to do that. Third area is on relationships. Um, what what are the quality relationships we have with our customers, with our suppliers, with our whole network of employees, and how does the vision we now have for the next three to five years, because I find it difficult for most people to get past five years on vision work. If we're going to do this vision, how do our relationships need to change? How do we need to relate to customers differently, suppliers differently? Or how do, what do we need to reinforce in those relationships because we, that's going in the right direction for us now? Uh, and, and habits. An organization to change culturally has to change habits. And that's very difficult. <laughs> it, you know, what I mean is it takes time. And you have to know the habit you're trying to change and how to measure it, blah, blah, blah. But uh, those four things, if those things don't change, is my observation, the changes that you want don't happen. Mm -hmm. Or they don't happen as well as they could have. They don't get embodied. You know, people, the CEO or the vision manager, whoever comes in the meeting, makes an announcement about the new strategy, the new plan, the new direction, the spinoff, what have you. And everybody sits in the room, and then everybody goes to the parking lot and says, we're not going to do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like the silent veto. Yeah. So if you don't talk about this stuff, you can't become conscious enough of it to manage it. And for me, that's mindfulness in action. I'd be curious if you could make it real for me by maybe giving an example. You don't have to name the company. But a company okay. that you worked with, and you could use either side, people who weren't able to bring their attention to one of these qualities and make a successful change or how a company did it successfully. I'd be okay. curious about both just to really get it real in my own understanding okay. of tribal change. Right. So uh, one, ex one example uh, is uh, an international business located outside uh, North America and 30 years old, uh, family owned, uh, very successful and growing um, with clients from 44 countries or something close to that. So the, the founder of the business is ready to begin to ha move on in terms of her time, energy, and, you know, retirement thinking kinds of things. But the pattern in the organization still is focused on that person. So no one seems to want to make a decision or to take a risk uh, as long as that person is still somehow, you know, in the field and in, in, uh, in view. So it took some time, several years to help people as well as this founder to work together to understand that they had a story that they could only function well if she made the decision and they couldn't really trust anybody else's decision. Another part of the story people had was this person who owned the business really didn't care about them. That was the story floating around in the organization. So part of what I do to begin with is you might say I um, 
well, like Margaret Mead, I go live with the tribe. I go to the place, uh, you know, whether it's police or fire or HP, for that matter, I spend enough time in the organization that I'm going to be working with that I start to know the language, I start to see some patterns, et cetera. So I can, along with a team of people in that organization, become more conscious, more aware of the stories people have, the heroes and heroines they have in the company. And so if, you know, this business had a hero, had a couple of heroes who turned out to be less than ethical, Hmm. but the people survived because the story about them did not, did not reveal that. I mean, this, this is not something unusual. So in that sense, um, and then habits, you know, people were late, they wandered, the meetings never started on time. Uh, and so we had some discussions and some working together on what are the new habits for what they wanted to do next in the vision. And one of the new habits was we got to be on time. If you're not here on time, we start without you. And so just really in clear communication about this stuff is where the issue really comes. Even if people become conscious, you still have to communicate it skillfully to people or they'll just resist. So that's an example of habit change, very mundane, but, you know, a lot of time is wasted waiting on people who are kind of floating around the building. (laughs) I see this so much anyway, uh, in some cases. If having people define the the customer experience that they want to provide, in the context of whatever their vision is in the short term is, is very important. And then you ask yourself, okay, if this is our vision, we want to increase sales this much or expand this much around the world or wherever, uh, enter new markets, build new stores, whatever the case may be, what has to change here? What has to shift? So I try to train people in asking themselves, this is where we want to go. What in our culture has to shift so we can get there? You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. What's interesting for me, Larry, in, in listening to you is I'd say, oh, he sounds like a grounded and effective organizational consultant. I wouldn't know this stealth agenda, if you will, that you have a mindfulness background, that you are a teacher under Thich Nhat Hanh's ordination program. I wouldn't know any of that. I would. There's nothing about what you're saying that tips your hat. So I'm curious, how do you approach organizational consulting that's different with the background that you have? What do you think are those unique stealth features? 
Well, I think one is my own mindfulness and meditation practice. So that the quality I develop in my meditation, I'm learning to embody. And I carry that with me into whatever interaction and encounter I'm going to have in an or, or presentation, as the case may be, in an organization. So I, I, it, you know, it's more important to demonstrate mindfulness than it is simply to talk about mindfulness. Mm-hmm. So that's one principle of my approach. I mean, I don't, don't have to do that, but I'm completely fine in doing that because my concern is that people get momentum in their lives with a forward-moving energy. So I'm not attached to how to facilitate that or what language to use to do that. Because I know, like in a tribe, if you don't figure out enough of how to speak that tribe's language, it doesn't matter what you're offering. (laughs) It will not be accepted. So it's really trying to be sensitive to who my customers and my clients are. Um... Another story, I'm trying to think of a story that won't be heard incorrectly. Uh, There was a uh, business that wanted to expand into um, more diverse markets. And they had a plan, theoretical plan, you know, on paper and charts and everything. And I got invited in by the CEO and uh, through a friend of mine's recommendation. And I, I just asked one question, had anybody been to any of these places where you want to do this? And seems like a fair question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Seems like a fair question. (laughs) Yeah. So it's just like, this is to me, mindfulness and action in business. What should my attention be on? If I want to succeed with what I said, I want to succeed with next. You know, how do I, where do I place my attention? Where do I place energy? Where do I place resources? And so many uh, resources are scattered in organizations. And, and that's part of the reason my topic is on energy management. Right. I'm glad you brought that up because I want to talk about that. As part of Sounds True's Year of Mindfulness program, you will be giving a presentation on what you're calling the secrets of energy management. So what do you mean by that? And then go ahead, tell our listeners the secrets. Just go ahead, all the secrets. You know. um, well, this, this, so I developed, I have to give credit where credit's due. I developed these secrets after studying with an old friend of mine, Angelus Arian. Mm-hmm. And, um, and in one of her books, she, and, and I, I've taught with her and studied with her, et cetera, as well. Uh, in one of her books, she talked about, she had gone around the world, she was a cultural anthropologist, and identified what she called four addictions. And the more I worked with those and understood those and started to see those, I, I decided that what one way of looking at what she was pointing to was how people use energy. And you know, the addiction language is a little confusing uh, for some of us. So. But to me, this is about energy. And so the first, the first thing is to understand how you leak energy. You know, just like you do an audit of a house. Yeah. Uh, to find out, you know, where there are leaks in windows or wherever there might be. Uh, and there, I have five that I've discovered so far. 
the first way organizations and individuals leak energy is by being preoccupied with what's not working. I definitely do that. Because <laughs> I know <laughs> okay. it's, it's so natural. I mean, it's I, all right. That's what I do our, all day. Our, our, <laughs> our neurology sets us up for that as well, right? Uh, in terms of how our brain works. But uh, it's much easier for our nervous system to remember disappointment than it is happiness. That's pretty striking, mm -hmm. unless you really work at it. <laughs> anyway, the second way we can lose energy is by being preoccupied with controlling things uh, or with certainty. And it makes us risk averse. And so we end up holding on to energy instead of releasing energy in the direction that we have chosen to go. Uh, of course, I should say, you know, the energy leak of not what's not working is you never get to think about what is working and what could work. Mm -hmm. And so by the time your energy, you're just so preoccupied with what's not working, you don't have any energy left to think about anything that's not in that climate of the mind you created for yourself by that leak. The third one is drama. So another way organizations lose drama, I mean, lose energy, is the drama, the rumor mill, the triangulation. Um, I had a client once who I, mean, I had mentioned the impact of rumors on organizations. And I said, well, you know, we, we can't be serious. It was serious on the, on the stock exchange. Why, why isn't it true in an organization? And so the next time I visited, I was in the men's room and I made up a rumor. Nothing threatening or scary. Just a little simple rumor. And uh, the next week when I went back to see my client, he's like, have you heard? <laughs> I said, that's not true. I know it's not true because I made it up. <laughs> uh, and this is what we do as human beings. We make things up. That's okay. It's not knowing we make things up, you know, and getting over caught up in what, you know, in corporations people call, you know, or in offices, personality conflicts. And then people will have conflicts, but it's different in the workplace unless you're doing a soap opera to turn it into one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so much energy gets lost in people's stuff. Mm -hmm. And this is why the training in emotional intelligence is so very important because most, most, many people think that comes naturally. It does not for most of us. We have to be trained. So we lose energy by focusing on what's not working, by focusing on control or certainty, or drama. We also lose energy by not having clear boundaries. Hmm. This is especially challenging now in our 24-7 digital interneted universe. So right, anybody can kind of reach out and touch you now, anytime, anywhere. And what I notice is that any call or communication from anyone is always urgent. <laughs> so. Um, that's a great way is, or people who, you know, get called in Hong Kong at two in the morning because the person in Canada thought, didn't realize, didn't remember the time change. I mean, these are all concrete stories I've heard. And so 
unless we figure out an organization, it's how to create a greater sense of boundaries and clarity and feel comfortable saying, well, you know, that really is the wrong time to reach out for me. So in so many organizations, I was in a meeting recently and we facilitated a conversation about people. This was their number one frustration. And what we discovered is they'd never talked about it together. Mm-hmm. It only took 10 minutes to solve it. Um, so this is again about bringing clarity. Mindfulness is about bringing clarity to what's happening and, and figuring out how to skillfully uh, handle it. The other way we lose energy is by being focused on perfection. Hmm. You know, so it's like somebody who builds a new house and invites you over for dinner and you walk in the front door and they take you over to the one flaw <laughs> and, and point it out in this brand new whole house. Mm-hmm. And I've been in meetings after meetings all over the world with different people at many levels, all complaining because something wasn't 100% perfect. Instead of figuring out what the 99 or 90% perfection was and how to improve that or how to reduplicate that in terms of how much energy gets placed on things. So that's what the secrets are going to be about. Well, first of all, I think all five of these are so useful to bring our attention to, at least for me and listening to you talk about them. I'm curious, number one and number five seem to have some overlap, this idea of being preoccupied with what's not working and losing energy about things aren't perfect. And I'm curious, how do you respond effectively if that happens, just so happens, somebody I know, I think, has that challenge of focusing on the negative, how would you help coach that person to have a different kind of viewpoint? I, and I, I share with people some of my, my research uh, from the neuroscience uh, field in that what we now know is that our brains are wired for survival and safety, et cetera, in terms of our, our amygdala that plays that function and other parts as well. And so, what happens when something is negative or could become negative, it literally sticks into, and goes into long-term memory almost instantly. But when things are positive, we have to actually pay attention to what was positive with five times more energy for it to go into long-term memory. Or it just bounces off like Teflon. So what I like to say to people is that, you know, this is why you can be having an absolutely great day and one person, one clown in traffic can upset the rest of your evening by one gesture. So part of this is we're hardwired this way. So we have to learn to practice with our attention not to be caught in that. That's what this means to me. Mm-hmm. So I have to actively put energy and effort five times as much into trying to hardwire the good things that are happening in my day. Yeah. Yeah. Save it to the hard drive. (laughs) I'm too busy leaking energy and obsessing about the things that upset me (laughs) about what's not working. (laughs) Well, one more, one more practice uh, that if there's time during 
the presentation in October, I'll, I'll do a little bit on, I learned this when I was getting certified in, in trauma uh, work, but it's called uh, resourcing. And this is, if we're going to use mindfulness language, it's like remembering. And resourcing is a practice to help people stabilize the nervous system. This is a part of resiliency skill development. And so that um, when our nervous system, you know, is fight, flight, or freeze, the basic kind of responses to life experience, that we learn how to spend the time with our attention remembering those things that are good in our life, in our day, in our family, in nature. And this can be very mundane uh, activity. But I, I think it, it takes effort. And it also takes some learning to know how to do this. But for me, it's important for people to learn how to do this. My my job isn't to be around forever. My job is to help give people the skills that they want to have, if they want to have them, to enhance their way of being a human being in today's world, in a corporate world, and at home, mm-hmm. and in this society, or whatever society I happen to be in. I'm curious, Larry, in your own life and experience, which of these five energy leaks, if I can get personal for a moment, has been the most challenging for you in working with yourself? Well, I would say for me, it's what's not working. Uh huh. I tend, in terms of learning styles, I am uh, an analytical, logical uh, oriented learner. And so. You know, I'm like befuddled, astounded <laughs> at some things that would seem to be quite simple for them to work, um, and they don't. So it's and so I've had to learn how not to let myself be overcome by being frustrated by somebody not being like me <laughs> and thinking the way. Uh, you know, I read it every time I'm in a business. I'm like redesigning it and in my mind while I'm in line and <laughs> I'm observing how customers are being related to. And it's kind of like, so I, my tendency is that that's not working very well. That's not working very well. That's not working very well. Mm-hmm. So what I've learned how to do is to then ask when that comes up, which is fine is to ask myself, okay, well, what would you do about it? Mm-hmm. How would you change it? How would you improve it? So I, I flip as fast as I can to responsibility instead of critique. Now, one of the interesting things that I discovered in reading a bit about your background, Larry, in preparation for this conversation, was that you were at a certain point a Baptist minister, and I'm, I still am. Oh, you still are. Okay, so uh, what I was going to—I'm curious about the journey of being both a Baptist minister and a mindfulness meditation mm-hmm. teacher, and how that rolls for you. Um, with this. This is a question I'm often asked. Um, the first thing I would say is my theological study was uh, not Baptist. My theological study was at the Ecumenical Institute in Chicago, and uh, the founder was a Methodist. Uh, but I ended up being ordained Baptist because the founder after me studying there for 10 years or whatever and teaching and all this, and being 
on the faculty academy, and I had I had done all the work I needed to do for Christian ordination. But this guy was always in a hurry, <laughs> so he arranged for my ordination with a, a a pastor who was a friend who was also a friend of Martin Luther King in those days, and um, that my mentor knew. So I got ordained Baptist by a Roman Catholic, by a Methodist, and by a Baptist. I was already intellectually familiar a little bit with uh, Buddhism and mindfulness practice. And as I mentioned earlier, the India experience really helped me understand the value of it. And as I went, went around the world and learned and, and then with Thich Nhat Hanh, um, and then my own scholarship and a PhD, et cetera, and, and, uh, and Buddhism and uh, religious studies. Seems like this is, uh, you know, what I should be doing with myself at this time. Well, I guess to ask my question in a different kind of way, does your Buddhist practice and being a Baptist minister weave together in you in some interesting way that has given birth to something new that, of course, would be different for somebody who was just a Baptist minister or just a meditation teacher. And that's correct. And I'd love to understand and get a feel for that a bit. um, Well, it, it does weave because my, my life, I, I try to embody my whole life. So for me, you know, there wasn't, this period and that period, because I'm still learning about Christianity. And I'm especially now learning about it from a Buddhist perspective, which is providing me with striking insights. But I also continue to study uh, various religious traditions, as well as many Buddhist um, traditions from around the world. So recently I was revisiting uh, spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius, and then I was rereading Teresa of Avila, who I'd studied before. So it does weave together, and it comes out in my teaching. Mm-hmm. So it, it, I've never had any conflict with it, or any, because it's all me, right? So, so I try to embody my whole life and bring that as a something helpful to every situation and so yes so the stories uh from the old and new testament still are very alive for me Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, just like you know the bodhisattvas in the buddhist tradition are also very alive for me and uh so i think what i and this is feedback from other people what's happened for me that's new is this i'm I'm more a Dharma preacher than a Dharma teacher, though mm-hmm. I am a teacher because I, you know, I have the scholarship and I taught at university, blah, blah, but my energy comes from the oral tradition. That's my heritage as both an African-American and, uh, you know, the Pentecostal church I grew up in with my parents and the Baptist church I went to with my grandparents. So all that shows up when I try to warn people ahead of time. All that shows up when I teach outside of a corporation. Right, right. Okay, a Dharma preacher. I like it. Larry Ward, the Dharma preacher. Yeah, I was worried about that for a while, but there's actually a translation of the Lotus Sutra, 
and there's a chapter on the Dharma preacher. So I felt better once I came across that. Okay, one other thing that I discovered in doing some research for this conversation was an article that okay. you wrote a little more than a decade ago in the Mindfulness Bell, and mm -hmm. it's called Being Born a Person of Color. And I wanted to read yeah. a section of it, if that's okay with you, and we can talk about it. Sure. And here's what you write in this article, Being Born a Person of Color. You write, Discovering a Path of Practice continues to bring me deep healing and transformation, which penetrates every fiber of my being and brings me peace, freedom, and understanding. This has come through the continuous practice of recognizing and embracing my suffering, my anger, and my fear as a person of color. I have come face to face with the self-esteem complex in the seeds of my psyche and the collective psyche of our society. I have become intimate with the pain of being devalued, threatened, and harmed. In so doing, I have become more connected with the despair of my ancestors. So that's what I wanted to talk about. There's a couple of things that you say in this paragraph coming face to face with the self-esteem complex. I wanted to understand more about that and also this whole notion of ancestral healing and how okay. our spiritual practice can be a gateway to ancestral healing. Okay. So in terms, I'll start at the end and work backwards. So in terms of our, because I am at the DNA level anyway, still carrying my ancestors in my present um, body and mind. And we now uh, beginning to have some research on what can be transmitted in DNA that we didn't know before. We, some people suspect psychological characteristics, trauma, other you know patterns of incest, but also patterns of wonder and glory and greatness also. Um, we are not, um, I am not separate from how I got here, uh, is, is one way to say that. So whenever I, and I really learned this from Thich Nhat Hanh, whenever I can create peace in myself, I am creating peace in, as well for my ancestors who live in me. When I am able to be kind, I am, I am manifesting the kindness the potentiality of kindness that I've inherited as a human being, because my ancestry is not just African-American, it's a human species. So to me, the more I was able, and I continue to do this, the more I am able to attend to my suffering in skillful ways, the more I discover I can recognize other people's suffering. And the more I'm able to recognize other people's suffering, the more energy of compassion is born in me for myself and for them, whoever they may be. So, I mean, this is 
both from an African tradition, ancestors are very important, and the Buddhist uh, Asian tradition, ancestors are very important. And, you know, I have biological ancestors, I have spiritual ancestors, I have their ancestors on the land where we live in the world, the, the indigenous peoples. We have ecological ancestors. I'm surrounded by bamboo here and trees and the forest, and we are all in this together in this moment. So when I practice, I, I try to be in touch with as much of this awareness as I can. Mm-hmm. And if you could repeat your first point. The first point was when you say in this paragraph, this has come about oh, the this piece. Come. Yeah, through embracing my suffering, my anger, and my fear, yeah. I've come face to face with the self-esteem complex. And the seeds the of my complex, psyche and the collective psyche. I think both are important. Right. Yeah is a teaching uh, in Buddhism about perception. And there's in the complexes or the dysfunctionality within oneself and in society that can come from these, these, this unhealthy, mind. The first one is, I'm superior to someone else. That's the first part. That's one part of the self-esteem, the self-identity, the self-value complex. Mm -hmm. So, or I can't understand my value unless I I tell myself I'm superior to somebody else's. Mm -hmm. And then I have to live my life, build societies or whatever to act that out whether I'm conscious of it or not. The other one is I am less than. This is, a, this is another part of the complex. Uh, I am less valuable. And, I mean, this is so painful to encounter around the world. You know, I've worked in villages and ghettos and Calcutta, and I've been in Africa and Latin America and on and on and on, in the U.S. And so much of the suffering I see in people is, is this... Um, self-esteem complex in terms of being less than, less value than. Um, And then we internalize these. We embody these. They drive our behavior from our unconscious. And the, the third one that's the most difficult is the same as or the equality complex. And what that means in Buddhism is that as human beings, we are so vastly mysterious that to assume to use language and understandings like superior, inferior, and the same is an inaccurate description of a human being. It can be a description of someone's skill set. It can be a description of someone's capability in terms of actual doing of things. But in terms of just the core nature of being, um, that's an inadequate description of one another. It actually is a cage Hmm. that locks us into a narrow understanding of ourselves and each other. And then, you know, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Well, I think, I think there's a very, very important point because a lot of times people will say, Oh, we're the same. We're the same underneath it. We're the same. And that's, that's a, and they think they're being, 
generous or open-hearted, yeah. but what I hear no, you're saying is that they're, they're actually missing something important here. Yes, yeah, so it's like there's a great teaching in Mahayana Buddhism, not the same, but not different either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's really what the teaching is. No, we are not the same, but we're not different either. We are all uh, earthlings, to use a phrase from a friend of mine, uh, Prayer Abbot of uh, Zen, Zen Temple, Zen Center in San Francisco or in Berkeley. But so we're all earthlings. So, no, we're not the same, but we're not different either. So, that way of starting to look at ourselves and to look at one another can open up some freedom inside of us in terms of how we think about things how we make decisions about things, how we envision what's possible for ourselves and for our society. If we are simply preoccupied or caught in our complexes, we never get out to look at them and ask ourselves, you know, is this wise? Is this healthy? If we stay in the unhealthy parts of the patterns, I don't mean, you know, of course some people are better than other people at different things. To me, that's great. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, and and some people aren't as good as other people in some things. Fine. I mean, that's the way life is. So that's not really what the teaching's about. The teaching's about our relationship to one another and our relationship to ourselves and how we perceive ourselves. So I want to just dig in a little bit more here, Larry, because sure. I think when somebody imagines creating understanding between people of different races, the idea of not putting oneself above or putting oneself down. That's the first two points you made. That's relatively easy to appreciate. That's correct. But this third point, which is, and we're also not the same, but we're not different. We're earthlings, but we're not the same. Help me understand how to put that into practice in a cultural way, if you will, or within companies, within groups? How do we actually live that so that the deep respect that I think you're pointing to in that insight comes into action? Well, I, I think the first way I try to put this into practice, I do put this into practice, is by how I start my day. And so I try to start my day by first calming down my body and then calming down my mind. Um, and then in, in, I go outside of our house and I encounter the non-human world around me. And what I'm trying to do is to get to have a, just a moment of experience in which the boundary between me and other collapses. And in business, to take this out, outside of Buddhist teachings or philosophical thought, in business, this means, to me, you have to understand that you are your customer, and your customer is you. Your customer is not just some number, some faceless uh, person, you know, credit card moving through, to, you know, a transactional phenomenon. That's a human being, that's a society, uh, that's a job, that's a life for someone. So it, for me, it means uh, having a sense of wholeness 
as we interact with one another. So even when you have to like dismiss an employee, the to me the the practice is to first in yourself before you meet or do all this. I I which I've had to do, and I I go through myself, and then I place my in my mind. I visualize myself as that person receiving this news, and I visualize and I have my mind open and my heart open to all the implications this will have for that person. So this is not uh, a transaction for me. So for me, this this center one is about non-dualism. It's about in, in seeing yourself reflected in the other and the other reflected in you. But in business, this is especially true with our customers, but also with our employees. You know, I am my employees, and my employees are me. So this, Larry, gets to the part of us that's deeply connected with other people. You could say non-dual, that there's this unity between us. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like you're also pointing to a respect of difference at the same time. And that's one of the things that I'm curious about here. Oh, to respect difference? Yeah, that that seems like part of what you're yeah. sa- what you're pointing at. It's uh, yeah, well, yeah. You know, difference is what makes nature so stunning, <laughs> so beautiful, or the night sky, or you know, every day I check out the Hubble telescope for a live feed for a few minutes just so I remember I'm on a planet, right? Um, and I, I think this. You know, we have to learn to embody this. We have to train ourselves to do this. I've worked a long time, and I continue every day to keep myself trained so that I can also ask myself, here's another interesting way to look at it, is when somebody comes to me and says, do you know Henry failed at such and such, or Henry made this mistake, you know, in myself, the first thing I say to myself is, am I sure about this? So for me, a part of this practice is giving people the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. So before I critique, I try to observe. I try to pay attention. But first, I pay attention to my own stuff. Because I, I worked with a, a company once where the owner wanted to know why this guy kept hiring people that looked exactly the same. <laughs> and I found out after a little while, he kept rehiring his high school girlfriend. Uh-huh. <laughs> I guess things hadn't worked out. But this is what happens when you forget difference. I mean, everything around us is made of different things combined together to create other things. I mean, this is how life is. So to me, it's really strange for people to... Um, I understand the discomfort of difference, different language, different food, different cultures, different weather, different attitudes, ideologies, but I'm not intimidated by difference. I think difference is cool Mm -hmm. (laughs) and important. I have a friend who's a classical pianist, and I've had the pleasure of sitting with him in rehearsals, and man, if there's only one key on the piano, come on. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like how I don't know to me this is so obvious I'm sorry I'm having such a hard time being clear about it but <clears throat> this is how nature works and so we're having to learn 
to be more like nature. Yeah. It doesn't mean every, it doesn't mean some amalgamation of sameness and vagueness and some kind of stew. Yeah. It it means, uh, it means deep rootedness, deep clarity, deep caring and deep respect. Yeah. Because, you know, I know, I know people where I live, they got talents I'll never have. Yeah. So, I, you know, I need them in my life. Um, and so, you know, to learn to look at each other as um, each other. And I don't mean there aren't difficult people. And I don't mean there aren't people who need to be in jail or arrested or in therapy because we all at least probably need therapy. Um, but I, 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 this, to me, the difference is not an excuse, is what I'm trying to say. Now, Larry, I just want to end on this one final question, which is okay. I've seen in some of your writings the use of a phrase, fierce equanimity, mm-hmm. developing not just equanimity, the ability that you've talked about calming the body, and mm-hmm. not being emotionally reactive. Uh, we've also talked about the leaders who are quite emotional as a leadership strategy. Mm-hmm. Not, not. But yeah. what do you mean here by fierce? What makes our equanimity fierce? What's that quality? What makes our equanimity fierce is we embody it continuously. It does, it does not, it is not a way, it is not something that comes and goes. Our practice has developed to the stage at which uh, equanimity actually resides in our psyche, like a calm lake. Winds come, waves can come, things, different things can come, but the lake is not disturbed. So for me, fierce equanimity is knowing that this is anchored in the cells, in my, at the cellular level in my body. And so I can carry this with me and just to a, to the classroom. We spent my wife and I spent three years working in an international school with the owners and teachers and administrators at their request to teach mindfulness and integrate mindfulness into their entire curriculum. And the capacity for stillness. There's a great article a friend of mine just wrote about this. There's a great talk on TED TEDx on stillness and its importance in creativity. Uh, there's also some great research on silence. To me, this is how we begin to, to fierce equanimity is equanimity that is rooted in the body as in as well as in the mind. And it's beyond just the conscious act. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. It's like uh, where I live is a hundred-year-old walnut tree. And, you know, there's been a lot of wind where I live and a lot of rain, but it's not moving. <laughs> That's what I mean by fierce equanimity. I've been speaking with Larry Ward. You have the Dharma name, True Great Sound. Is that correct? That's correct. What a beautiful name. And I can say, talking to you today, I heard it. I heard the True Great Sound. Well, thank you very much. Larry Ward will be part of Sounds True's Year of Mindfulness program. This is a year-long membership program. Each month, participants study with a different mindfulness teacher, gather with a community of people from all over the world, 
online to deepen their practice of mindfulness and to bring it to every aspect of living. Larry, as he mentioned, will be presenting in October in the Year of Mindfulness program in a special module that has to do with bringing our mindfulness to work. And he'll be teaching on the secrets of energy management. And if you're interested in more information on Sounds True's Year of Mindfulness program, just go to our website, SoundsTrue.com. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thank you, Larry, for being with us, and thank you, everyone, for listening.